Let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Jump down to verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Father, we pray as we spend this time in your word that you will speak a word of life, of conviction, where we need to be convicted, of comfort, where we need to be comforted, built up and encouraged, where we need that, Lord. We pray that you will meet us in this time of your word, and that, Father, our hearts will, will be soft ground to hear what you have to say to us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I started in chapter 15 because I wanted to start at the end and see the fall of Saul. How did this happen so quickly? Just a couple chapters ago, we're reading about this great victory and this king. We're reading about a humble man who didn't even want to be king and was hiding in the, in the luggage when they went looking for him. We're, we're, we read about a guy that, that didn't want the role, didn't want the position, didn't want the responsibility. But boy, when crisis came, he rose up in the spirit of God and he was, he was the man the hour needed. So how is it a few chapters later, God is saying, I reject you as king. I regret that I made you as king. How did Saul fall so quickly and finish so badly? And I think a big part of the answer to that, and it's not an uncommon occurrence, is that he started humbly, he got some successes, and those successes went to his head. He began to enjoy success. He began to enjoy the power of being king. He began to enjoy the admiration of the people. And so success in the eyes of people became more important to Saul than obedience to God. So many of us have probably heard the phrase, I've preached some sermons with this phrase, failing forward. And that's the concept that there are times when we fail where if we humble ourselves and we learn from that failure and grow from that failure, failure can actually have a powerful uh, ability to move us forward in life. Well, this morning, I want to talk about succeeding backward where success actually is not success in our lives, where it actually moves us backwards in life, where it actually can become, as it was for Saul, our undoing. 
So the title of this message is Succeeding Backwards, Tracking the Fall of King Saul. We're going to be tracking over the next two Sundays this fall from grace. And it begins, the fall, the fall begins in chapter 13. And I'm going to have just two points this morning. The first point is this, Saul pursued success by disobeying God and taking matters into his own hands. We're going to see that in chapter 13. We're just going to read portions of it. But Saul pursued success by disobeying God and taking matters into his own hands. So here's the story in chapter 13. I'm not going to take the time to read it. I encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter. But here's what's going on. The Philistines have assembled a great army, chariots, horsemen, thousands of soldiers, and they have assembled against the Israelites. And so the Israelites, the soldiers, are quaking with fear. And they're beginning to scatter. Men are beginning to run and hide. It says they hide in the caves. They're hiding in the tombs. They're hiding in cisterns. And so Saul is watching his army get smaller and smaller. And the men that are left are so afraid of this vast army that the Philistines have arrayed upon them. And in the meantime, Samuel said, I will be there in seven days and I will offer an offering to God and I will call upon God to give the Israelites success. So Saul is waiting for that and he's, I'm sure he's thinking, please hurry, Samuel, because I'm losing men. I'm hemorrhaging men and this, this, my army is getting smaller and smaller. I can't afford to get much smaller. And the seventh day comes when Samuel said we'd be there, and he's not there. And so Samuel, or Saul, feels this pressure to do something. And what he does is he steps out of his lane, and he offers a burnt offering as a sacrifice to God. in clear disobedience to God's command. And wouldn't you know, as soon as that offering is finished smoldering, Samuel shows up. Samuel shows up, and this is what Samuel says to Saul in verse 11, chapter 13, verse 11. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw Listen to his answer. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Do you hear the string of excuses that Saul offers for why he disobeyed God? When I saw, when I saw the men scattering, when I saw that you had not arrived at the prescribed time, when I saw that the armies of the Philistines had arrayed against us, when I saw that we had not sought the Lord's favor, I felt compelled, he puts his disobedience to God in the best possible light. I felt compelled to seek the Lord's favor by offering a sacrifice. Samuel's response 
in verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. There is no doubt that there is real pressure on Saul. I mean, this is pressure. There is real life and death pressure on Saul. But here's what I want to bring to our hearts this morning. Pressure is not determinative. Pressure does not determine direction. The pressure is real. But pressure can move us towards God as much as it can move us away from God. That pressure could have pushed Saul towards a, a deeper obedience just as powerfully as it pushed him towards disobedience. Saul could have trusted God harder because the situation looked worse. He could have risen up with faith and he could have said, you know what? Come what may. If the Philistines attack us, I will fight back. I will trust God, come what may, but I will not disobey God. But he didn't. And God said, boy, if you had done that, if you had trusted me, if you had not stepped out of your lane and disobeyed my command, I would have, I would have given your kingdom, I would have established your kingdom forever. But as it is, I'm going to tear it from you and give it to a man who's after my own heart. We all know who that is, and he's coming up soon. There are times, there's no question, brothers and sisters, when pressures mount in our lives. Amen? Pressures mount in our lives, and, and it, can feel, it can feel like the path to succeed means we've got to disobey God. Those, those moments come when whatever it is we want that we define as success is down a path that includes not obeying the word of God. A different path than trusting and obeying God. Maybe someone's in a deep financial need and it feels like they're pressed to do something unethical to fix that need. Or a couple and their marriage is struggling and one of them finds the co-worker to be understanding of them to appreciate them in a way that their spouse does not and their heart is tempted to begin to flirt and to begin to spend time with them because they understand me and my spouse does not they appreciate me and my spouse doesn't appreciate me like that well first of all we got to face reality folks you know why she, 
you know, he or she understands you and appreciates you because they don't know you. That's why. They don't know you. They don't live with you. There's a reason why the, the wife doesn't appreciate you the way that person who sees you for a few hours every day at your best appreciates you. So first of all, we've got to dispel the illusion. But secondly, you're at a point where your heart is tempted. And I wish I could say this is only for those who don't believe in Jesus, but it's, it's just as real for those who do. Your heart is tempted. I think the successful life I'm looking for, the successful relationship I'm looking for is with this person, not who I'm married to. Or a young Christian wants to get married really badly, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a good thing. But the only person that seems to be in their life is not a Christian. And so they are tempted to like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I hope for the best. Or maybe you've had a supervisor ask you to do something to lie for them or to fudge numbers or to do something unethical or to steal something. And you know there's going to be uh, a problem if you don't do what they're asking you to do. Or finally, maybe someone's hurt you. And hurt you badly, and all you want to do is hurt them back. We'll always have excuses for disobedience to God. When I saw, when I saw, I felt compelled. Here's my encouragement to myself as well as you. When we have a choice between succeeding without God or trusting God when things look impossible, choose trusting God. Choose trusting God. Success from disobeying God will always be succeeding backwards. It will eventually lead to regret. Now, I want to make clear, I, I am not one of those who believe, you know, when I say Saul took matters into his own hands, I do not believe that the, the person who trusts God just sits around and waits for God to do everything. I don't believe that at all. I hope you don't. We're not talking about, when we talk about Saul disobeying God and taking matters in his own hands, we're not talking about what Saul should have done is just sit back and say, I'm not doing anything until God does something. The problem wasn't that Saul did something. The problem was he did the wrong thing. That's the line that we're talking about here. That's the line that we don't want to cross, no matter the pressure to cross it. So let's go back. Let's unwind these different scenarios. Let's say you have, are struggling with a financial need. And, and the debt is piled up and your bills are piling up and there's more. So, okay, that doesn't mean you should just do nothing. Don't do an unethical thing to meet that need. But, but listen, pray about it. First of all, pray about it. And then if you need to get a second job, get a second job. If you need to um, ask for a raise or look for another job or, or make a budget, and cut back on some things. 
Whatever it takes, do that. Say, God, I'm going to do what it takes, and I'm going to ask you to bless it, and you guide me. So you're moving forward. Or let's say you're the, the guy at the office who's flirting with the, uh, the woman at the office because your marriage is struggling. Okay, work on your marriage, amen? Work on your marriage. I guarantee as soon as you get married to her, her eyes are going to be open, and you're going to have the same problems that you had before because you are, you are bringing the problems into the next marriage. But work on your marriage. Try to strengthen it. Try to grow together. Or if you want to get married, go, listen, uh, you know, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I'm going to assume the opposite of that in Scripture, though it's not in the Bible. He who finds a husband finds a good thing. Women, I'm going to leave that up to you. But if you want to get married, that's fine. Go places where you're going to meet other people and your demographic, you're single people and whatever. Go online. I know some wonderful couples who have met online. But, but avoid the difficulties and challenges of stepping over a line where I know their life is not centered on the same Savior that mine is. Or, and I've seen people do this, push past red flags. I see issues in their character, but I'm going to push past it because I really want to get married. I've seen that happen. It doesn't end well. Look for creative solutions to bring to your supervisor. Listen, I can't lie. I can't do what you're asking me to do, but I want to help you in this situation. Here's some creative possibilities, alternatives. Or end here, if someone's hurt you, there's no, forgive them. Pray for them that God will bless them. And move on, move on. In other words, when success seems to require disobeying God's word, don't do it. Don't do it. Hold up. Pray. Pray. Any success that comes from disobeying God's word will be succeeding backwards. My second point this morning is that Saul turned God-given success into man-driven success. And I'm going to explain what I mean and how we get there. Because the next step in Saul's downward trajectory occurs in chapter 14. And ironically, chapter 14 starts out with a great success. But it's not Saul's success. It's his son Jonathan's success. Jonathan, um, the, the Israelite army is at this place of standstill. Massive army arrayed against them. Outposts, Philistines all over. They kind of had dominion over Israel in many ways. And so the army's at a standstill. They're not going forward. They're not going backwards. They're just there. They're just hanging out and not doing anything. And finally, Jonathan leans over and he whispers to his armor bearer, chapter 14, verse 6, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I love his armor bearer. This is the guy you want carrying your armor. His armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. That's the guy you want on your side. We need the faith of Jonathan and his armor bearer today. 
They, they see the enemy. But you know how they see the enemy? Jonathan says, look at the uncircumcised. In other words, they have no covenant with God. That's what it meant. They do not have a covenant with God. We do. Let's go. Let's go. The two of us. And it might be that God will give us victory because he can save whether with many or with few. They see the enemy, but they see a bigger God. Amen? They see a bigger God. When they come to the Philistine outpost, and it's, it's on this high hill, I don't totally get what's happening here. But Jonathan says to his armor bearer, he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. If they say, hey, you wait for us. We're going to come down to you. We're just going to stay where we are. But if they say, come up here and we'll fight you and kill you, we're going to take that as a sign. Let's climb. Now, here's why I don't totally get it. First of all, it kind of sounds like either way, they're going to fight. <laughs> you know, if they come to us, we're going to fight them. But boy, if they ask us to come up to them, we're going to take that as God. Here's why I don't get that. That is much harder. They're saying they got to climb. Literally, it says, but their hands and feet, they've got to climb this hill. And now they're on whose turf? They're on the Philistines' turf. It's kind of like Jonathan saying, boy, if they make it harder for us, we're going to know that God is in this, that God is for this. That's the opposite of what we sometimes do. Man, if God makes it really easy, I'll know God's in it. You know, if God makes this thing just fall in my lap, I'll know God's in it. Sometimes God says, no, work hard and trust me to give the results. I love Jonathan's attitude. If they say, come up to us, you, you two little guys, and we're going to kill you and cut your heads off and do all that, we'll know God is saying the Lord has given us the victory. So they climb and they climb and they climb and they get up there, probably somewhat tired, and they start killing him. I mean, actually, Jonathan knocks the men down and his armor bearer comes after him and kills them. Make a good movie. But that's what's happening. And so here's what happens is their victory, God begins to sin. Now there's a supernatural element that then begins to take place. God sends a panic. The Philistines, are all they see are people dying. They don't see how many people are fighting. So they probably think there's a ton of Jews that are fighting and killing. And, and the Bible says that God sends them into a panic. And Jonathan and his armor bearer are just killing people right and left. And now Saul's watchmen are watching this and they're like, we see a great victory going on. We see success happening. There's an avalanche of success happening. And so Saul and his men say, we want in on that. Even, the Bible says, those who are hiding out, they come out of their caves, they see success for the Jews, and they're like, we want in on that too. So now all of a sudden there's a rallying, and the Jews are coming along, and they're basically saying, we're getting in on what Saul, or what Jonathan and his armor bearer started. It's a success from God. God is not against success, brothers and sisters. This isn't an anti-success message. God is bigger than any problem, bigger than any army, bigger than any trial we could ever face. He's stronger than any weapon that can be formed against you. 
God is, God is bigger. I, just think, is there some situation you're in now that you're just thinking this? God is bigger than that situation. God's grace is bigger than our sin. God's love is stronger than all the hatred in the world. God is bigger. God is bigger. And God loves to give his children success in life. He promised Joshua. He said, every place upon which your foot dwells, I will give you success. See, I don't want you to think that this is like this narrow boy. If you just do the wrong thing, you just step out of line, you, you make this decision and you haven't prayed for 10 weeks about it. No, no, no. God God's gives big pasture. He gives a whole garden. He just says, don't touch that one thing. He doesn't give us a whole garden and say, now you can only touch that one thing. <laughs> Any place your foot finds, does Joshua, is he tied up? Like, boy, I don't even know where. He can walk anywhere he wants, and wherever he walks, God is going to give him success. God loves to give his children success. Jesus' last words on the cross were not, it fell short. That's not what he said. He said, it is finished. You know what that means? It is successful. It is accomplished. I've done what I came to do. So I want to just stir a fresh faith in our hearts that God, God can do it. God can do it. Chuck Swindoll says, every problem is an opportunity to prove God's power. Every day we encounter countless golden opportunities brilliantly disguised as insurmountable problems. I love that. Every day, we have golden opportunities brilliantly disguised as insurmountable problems. Saul looked out, saw a big army, paralyzed him. Jonathan looked out, saw a big God, small army, and went at it. This is a great God-given success. Then Saul steps in, and he messes it all up. He turns a God-given success into a man-driven pursuit of success. Here's what happens. Verses, chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved beyond them to beyond Beth-Avon, which is God-given success. That sentence is, the Lord saved Israel. The battle was moving forward. God-given success, verse 24. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. That is a man-driven pursuit of success. Let me unpack that a little bit in three very brief points. Three observations about man-driven success. The first is this. Man-driven success makes it about us rather than God. Saul says, Cursed be anyone who eats food before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Saul turns it all in on himself. It's all about me, Saul says. He didn't even start this thing, but now he says it's all about me and no one can eat food until we have, I have avenged myself. 
succeeding backwards is making success all about us rather than glorifying God with our lives. We want the credit. We want to look good. That's man-driven success. The second thought is man-driven success seeks success at the expense of people. Saul craved success so much. Why did he why did he forbid his troops to eat? He thought it would motivate them to keep going harder until, you know, so in case somebody was going to slack off and eat some lunch, he thought they could just keep going and keep going to make his success bigger and greater and more powerful. He was so after more success, he was willing to step on people. He was willing to hurt people to get that success. It had the opposite effect, by the way. The people grew weak. Fighting in a war is hard work, and they're expending energy. And they grew faint, and they grew weak, but they would not touch food. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but Jonathan didn't hear Saul's command, so he eats food. He lightens right up, and he's ready to go at it again. Saul would have killed him for disobeying his oath. Except the people stood in and said, no, 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 no. We wouldn't even have this victory if it weren't for this man. Saul was driven by a desire to succeed that made him willing to step on people, hurt his own people to get a bigger success. Those who abuse people to increase their success, be it to get more fame or more money, more power, status, whatever it is, they're succeeding backwards. They are like Saul. They're succeeding. And what they don't realize, with every success, they're moving backwards and backwards, and behind them is a fall. It may be a year later. It may be a month later. It may be 50 years later, but there is a fall unless they repent. Pride goeth before a fall. Why is this so important? I just finished a book that's called The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout. Little light reading. <laughs> one, of the, one of the amazing characteristics that so hit me about sociopaths is they have no conscience. They have no conscience. They are not capable of feeling guilt or remorse or regret for any action they commit. They, they may fake those things or they may feel bad if it hurts them, but they have no conscience. She writes, it, it's hard for the average human being to even imagine what it would be like to live without a conscience where you could literally do anything, hurt anybody, do anything and not feel even the slightest tinge. But there are people who have no conscience. Most sociopaths, and they estimate about 4% of the population to be sociopaths, most sociopaths are not murderers. They hold down jobs. They have families. They can look amazingly charming. They can excel in so many things because they have tools in their toolbox the average human being doesn't have. Lie, doesn't, doesn't bother them at all. Hurt people, doesn't bother them at all. But for them, she says, winning, success is about winning. It's about dominating. 
For some, it takes radical measures. For others, it's just little things. It's, it's that person at work that threatens them, and they find a way to hurt them without people knowing it or cut them down to size. But it's about winning. It's about dominating. And with no conscience, they'll use any tool in the box. But she says after studying and interviewing case after case after case, she has found that sociopaths generally live with a deep sense of emptiness, even when they're on top of the world. Because, and she insightfully writes, the core of life is about connecting and caring for people and being connected and care, be cared for. And sociopaths can't do that. Welcome to the Bible. Welcome to the Bible. True success doesn't come. Now, by the way, I believe God can intervene in the heart. I don't think anybody's passed the, the hand of God. But this is where they live apart from a miracle from God. True success, according to the Bible, doesn't come at the expense of people. True success is loving and connecting with other people and then connecting other people to God through Christ. That's true success. We see this in Jesus. Listen, there is no human being who has ever lived who is more successful on an infinite and eternal level, who is more worthy of worship and glory, not just of humans, but of the most powerful beings created. They worship him. They admire him. They glorify him. He is success personified. He didn't own a home. Didn't have like a prestigious job. Didn't travel the world. Didn't have a lot of money. Because those things are not what success is about. Those are the things we come to the end of our life. And if that's all we have, a big home, fast car, the end of our life is going to be very hollow feeling. For Jesus, he measured success by serving, loving, and saving people. And that's what he came to do. That's the success that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Man-driven success seeks success at the expense of other people. And then finally and briefly, man-driven success craves more and more and more and is never satisfied. Why did Saul swear this oath? He, again, he wanted to enlarge his victory. He wanted to expand his success. He wasn't content with the amazing success Jonathan had handed to him. He wanted more and more. We can never get enough man-driven success to fill the craving. If we're trying to fill a craving in our hearts and make life worth living by, by, by being successful in the world's definitions of success, what we'll have is always that craving will just get more and more. The more we get, the more we want. The more we have, the more we want. The more we have, the emptier we feel. And it'll always just be out of reach. 
Now, again, this, this is not like, so you shouldn't make money and you shouldn't have a nice car. You do all those things, but don't define success as those things. If God takes them away tomorrow, you, can, you are still a success if you're investing your life in the right things. For Saul, it was always gnawing at him. And we're going to see next week and going forward, Saul is falling apart on the inside. He has fallen apart on the inside and his kingdom's going to start falling apart on the outside. As we close, I just wanted to say it is good and healthy to want to succeed. It is good and healthy. Please don't leave here saying, okay, I have a new goal in life. It's to be a failure. It's to fail at everything I do. God help me. Some of us don't need help to do that. We need help to help us succeed. Listen, Jonathan did. He had a healthy desire. I, I, listen, he didn't say, you know, let's just go and die. He said, let's go. God is able to give success even through two guys. Let's go succeed, armor bearer. Wish we had his name. Saul, Jonathan said, let's go succeed. It's good to want to be successful. It's good to have an ambition in your life, to have goals in your life, to want to pursue great things in your life, whatever that is. And by the way, there's another Saul who later would be renamed Paul in the New Testament who had a great ambition. He says, I want to preach Christ where he has never been preached before. I want to reach this world. And by the grace of God, Paul did that. He had a magnificent ambition and a high goal and glorious aspirations. But Paul could also say, I have learned to be content with or without. So, my encouragement is don't let your soul crave. I want more of this. I want more of that. I want more recognition. I want more money. I don't have uh, as much as that person next to me. I don't have as much, you know, my job's not as this. My home's not as that. Don't, don't, don't let your soul go down that direction because it truly is empty. It is succeeding backwards. Nothing wrong with having, nothing wrong with not having. That's what Paul says. I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content when I have a big home. I've learned to be content when I'm sleeping under the stars. I've learned to be content when I'm driving a Maserati. I've learned to be content when I'm driving, and I do not want to offend anybody by naming your car. <laughs> but I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content. So that's a soul that's centered on something bigger than stuff or what people think. We'll never get enough of the world to fill us up. If we pursue success, driven by the belief that a little more, a little bigger, a little better is going to fill us up, we're going to be deceived, and we're in danger of succeeding backwards. So here's my closing encouragement to all of us. Draw near to Jesus with faith. Draw near to Jesus with faith. Invest love and care into people. And then, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. If you're drawn near to Jesus and you're investing in loving people, whatever your hand finds to do, go for it. And the Lord may indeed do a great work through you. 
In fact, I believe he will. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you. You have not only given us the pathway to success, but you have given us the ability through Christ. Lord, we come back to the very first verse that we read. He who began a good work. The good work was begun by you, not by us. He who began a good work in us shall be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray as we leave here today that if our souls are somehow getting somewhat centered on a success that does not, is not real, it's backward success, that you would be kind to open our eyes. You would be kind to show us that, that we might turn around, that we might come to you and say, God, I, I want the success that pleases your heart, that you say, well done, good and faithful servant too. Help me to grow in that, Lord. Help me to invest in that success. And I'm going to trust you for that. And I'm going to trust you for the results, Lord. Lord, I pray for that person who's standing on the edge where the line of disobedience to clear Scripture is in front of them, and they're tempted. They feel pressure to step over that line. I pray for them, Lord. I pray for them. I pray to God you would, would shift the pressure um, or shift the the tack of their hearts, really, that that pressure might draw them closer to you and not away from you, that that pressure would cause them to rise up and say, come what may, come what may, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to obey the word of God. And God, I will trust you with the results. Finally, Lord, we thank you for the one who succeeded for all of us, the one who could say, it is finished. And it was. Our salvation was purchased 100% by Jesus Christ. He accomplished what we could never accomplish. And we, by all our trust and faith in Christ, are saved. We are saved. And we thank you for that with all of our hearts. We live in his success. We live in Jesus' success, and we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray now as we go forth that you will bless each and every person here, each person watching online, that you will bless them with such a sense of how faithful you are to them, how much you love them, and how much you want to do through them, how much success you want to bring through their lives that they are just so built up and encouraged. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.